This sermon is one of those annoying sermons where you'll be flicking left, right and centre in the Bible. Um, If you don't want to do that, don't worry. If you want to see me afterwards, I will willingly give you all the Bible references I'm using because there's nothing worse than... What verse did he say? Where was he? Rob started off that reading by saying that you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a... an eye for an eye. That's all very well, but where does it say that? Where does it say an eye for an eye? There was a law in Jesus' time that allowed you to retaliate. If you turn to Deuteronomy, you will find this. The rest of the people will hear this and be afraid. Never again will such an evil thing be done amongst you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Or in Exodus, but if there is serious injury, you are to take a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand. Foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. In Leviticus, anyone who talks, anyone who takes a life of someone's animal must make restitution. Life for life, anyone who injures their neighbour is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. So that's where you've heard it said. In some ancient societies, punishment was often handed out regardless of the individual case. And often the retaliation exceeded the original crime. The law of retaliation was established as a check to inappropriate punishment. If a person harmed the eye of another person, the eye of the offender was to be given as equal punishment. The law was intended to equalise the justice. This law was meant to be carried out by the civil authorities and the courts to protect the public, punish the offenders and deter the crime. It was certainly not to be administered by the individual. In Deuteronomy 19, it says, One witness is not enough to convict anybody. Accuse of any... uh, Sorry, I'll start again. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offence they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses... If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priest and the judge who are in the office at the time. The judge must make a thorough investigation and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as the witness intended to do to the other party. 
You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of your people will hear of this and be afraid. And never again will such an evil thing be done amongst you. Show no pity. Life for a life. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Hand for a hand. Foot for a foot. It was, dis- it was to discourage private revenge. But in Proverbs we read this. Do not say, I will pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. Because the person who was, a f- who was um, wronged was liable to be overzealous. When governing authorities were responsible to administer justice, God's people were then free from the need for personal retaliation and were able to love and serve one another. The Lord is speaking directly to his people about seeking personal revenge. Do not seek revenge or bear grudges against one of your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. But in the time of Jesus, it was very turbulent. Jews were under the rule of the Roman occupying forces. It was easy to lose sight of this and begin to use the law of retaliation to justify your personal revenge. Jews were at the mercy of Romans everywhere, on the streets, in the courts, as well as the the army occupying, and and in the everyday of financial world. The Jewish leaders had little or no power to execute justice to protect their people. Those who were hurt wanted to strike back, especially when there was no apparent justice to protect them. So personal retaliation through violent resistance was commonplace amongst the Jews. Some Jewish leaders even gathered followers amongst them and to rise up and resist the Romans which led to popular resistance movements in the time of Jesus. But we find Jesus here on the Sermon on the Mount is condemning the ways of the law of retaliation. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Is it not the disciples' personal... It is the personal's responsibility... Sorry, it is the disciples' personal responsibilities to resist or to offset against the one offending you. Sorry, I'm getting really muddled. Do not resist an evil person. It is not the disciples' personal responsibility to resist or set oneself against an offending person. The disciple in this situation is to turn and take from being, the the disciple is to turn the situation around from taking to giving, that's what I was trying to say. The evil person is attempted to take, but Jesus' disciples are to give to the offender by serving him or her. Jesus' disciples are not first about, to think first about getting even. Even when they are being abused, they must think of ways to further the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
If we are his disciples, then we, as Rob said the other week, are the salt and light. We should look for ways and opportunities for our enemies to be exposed to the truth of God's kingdom. Jesus uses full illustrations from everyday life to show how we can serve those who offend us. In our passage, the first is where the disciples are insulted publicly in verse 39. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, it's interesting, isn't it? That if somebody struck me on the right cheek, I think I'd strike them right back. Because it's not the striking, it's the insult that it causes, isn't it? So, imagine your dignity being insulted like that. Now, the Roman military were known to insult people this way. To turn the other cheek indicates that Jesus' disciples are so secure in Jesus that they do not need to retaliate with evil, but with love. In Romans 12, we read, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. By turning the other cheek, you are placing yourself in a place of greater indignity. But it provides an opportunity to love the offender. The second part, in verse 40, we move to a legal setting. If somebody wants to sue you, the disciple is being taken to a court in an attempt to sue him for his tunic. The tunic was a base garment, a long sleeve in a robe, a bit like a nightshirt that the person wore next to the skin. Jesus instructs his disciples that if somebody tries to sue them for their tunic, they should let them have their cloak as well. Now the cloak was the outer robe, which was indispensable piece of clothing. In the Old Testament, when it was given as a pledge, it had to be returned before sunset, as it was used by the poor for sleeping cover. In Exodus, it reads... If you take your neighbour's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbour has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear them, for I am compassionate. Jesus makes a startling demand for his disciples. They must reverse the situation. Instead of defending themselves, seeking retaliation, they may skip the person who is unfairly attempting to take their most basic necessity. I wonder what we would do. In the third, in verse 41, we move to a sort of military scene. If someone forces you to go a mile. Now, the government and military personnel could requisition the help of local civilians and for official businesses. Officers of the Persian Royal Postal System 
could force civilians to carry official correspondence and Roman military could organise bands of unpaid labourers from the common people to construct roads, fortifications and public buildings. They could requisition individuals on the spot. And it wasn't until I started to study this that there's one very, very familiar passage in the Bible where this happens and we don't even give it a second glance. It's just part of a story. It's the story of Simon of Cyrene, forced by the Roman guards to carry Jesus' cross. In Matthew 37, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and forced him to carry his cross, forced him to carry the cross. In Mark's Gospel, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, there's an example in the scriptures of somebody being forced to do something and I never even spotted that. I know he was told to carry the cross but I didn't apply it to this situation. Jesus has told his disciples that they are forced to go one mile, they should go two. The last of the four points is in verse 42. The illustration relates to people that you might want to call uncomfortable. I can't think of another word. Give to someone who asks, the one who wants to borrow from you. This carries Jesus' point of loving one step further by referring to two types of people who we might meet in everyday life in our discipleship. Not only are Jesus' disciples to respond with positive treatment to those who ill-treat them, but they're also to give to those who beg and borrow. Now, I'm not clever in Latin or Hebrew or anything like that, but apparently the word ask is used in this context, and it indicates a poor person who begs for alms. And the word borrow may likewise have mean a poor person used in the same word in the original. <coughs> Luke uses it and indicates the loaning of it to a person who is unable to repay. Giving alms to the poor was a central exercise in the Jewish society. The Old Testament was clear about the obligation that people of Israel had to lend to the poor. In Deuteronomy 15, if anyone is poor among you, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites, if any of the towns and lands of the Lord your God is given you, do not be hard-heartened or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them what they need. Be careful not to harbour up wicked thoughts. The seventh year for the cancelling of debt is near, so you should not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to those and do so without grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put into, into, puts into your hand. There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, 
Be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. Jesus goes further still with a powerful image of generosity. The person begging may not be poor at all. They might not even require charity, but you are to give to them anyway. They may be unscrupulous, even your enemy, and there's no way are they going to ever pay you back. In Luke's Gospel, the disciples are to extend loans to their enemies. In Luke 6, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Jesus removes the obligation for judging the merit of the request of charity or of a loan. And Joe mentioned um, something that happened with Eve Rose when Eve was um, talking to a group of people and it came to the point when there was a giving session and they wanted to know exactly what the money was being given for. And how often we do, do we do that in our lives? We, we say to someone, oh, I'll lend you the money, but what are you going to use it for? Do we judge the merit of the loan? Jesus removes the obligation of judging the merit of the request for charity. His disciples are free to give generously without question. Now, the Old Testament gives low status to the sluggard who falls into poverty through their own laziness and regards the wicked of those who constantly seeks loans and do not repay them. In one of the Psalms, the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. To give freely to whoever asks, especially to those who may not really need charity and to those who there is very little chance of repayment, is the height of generosity. Jesus himself lived out this principle and became a vivid example to his followers. In 1 Peter 2, but this is how you this is how your this is how your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. This is what you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd the overseer of your soul and in romans he loves so much that he gave himself for sinners our obligation is to serve those around us, 
both those who seem to deserve it and even those that don't. The principle surely created unease for those who initially heard it. When I was preparing this, it created unease for me as well. And I'm sure it will create unease for you as you listen to this. But we put those words up, hearing, becoming and serving. I've put a set of questions together for Wednesday night. I haven't finished, so don't get excited. (laughs) I've put a set of questions together for Wednesday night. Even if you're not coming, I'd like you to take one and think about it. The question is quite sim- the questions are just quite simply. As a disciple of Jesus, can we think of examples of where we have had to or how we might turn the other cheek, give up your coat, go the extra mile, give to someone without expecting anything back? How, through hearing the word of God, do we put that into everyday life? How do we live it out? How do we serve by the word? We move on to the last part of this passage. Verse 43 to 47. Jesus begins these verses by quoting a central truth from the Old Testament. You have heard it was said, love your neighbour. Love for one's neighbour was one of God's greatest commands through Moses. In Leviticus 19. Do not speak revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. When answering a test by a legal expert, the greatest, what was the greatest command in law, Jesus replied with the command to love God and love, the, love your neighbour as yourself. You'll find that in Matthew 22. Teacher, Which is the greatest command in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command. And the second is, Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Hate your enemies is not explicitly found in the Old Testament. However, Moses directed his people to assist their enemies. In Exodus 23, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help it. However, the Old Testament loves However, as much as the Old Testament love of neighbours was at the heart of the Old Testament teaching, God also hates, the hates, hatred of evil is also central. In the psalm, we read this, You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. God hates evil. The, the psalmist takes it one step further. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. Hate all who do wrong. In turn, those who desire to follow Jesus learn to adopt God's hatred for evil. So the psalmist 
could say in another place, do I not, do I hate those who hate you, Lord? I abhor abhor those who rise up against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. In the Jewish community, they took it further, identifying their neighbour as exclusively those that were in the Jewish community. And the evildoers were the Gentiles or anyone outside of their community. And therefore, God and their enemies. The Jewish rulers had a rule called the rule of community. This gave instructions for seeking God in doing what is good and just with this purpose, that they may love all he has chosen and hate all those that they have rejected and they must abstain from all evil and hold fast to good. The instruction then goes one further that you may love the sons of light, each according to his lot in God's design, and hate the sons of darkness, each according to the guilt of God's vengeance. Because God hates evil, those who embody evil are understood to be God's enemies. It was natural to hate God's enemies. But Jesus takes this opposite view of love for one's enemies, and brings it together. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God does hate evil, but he intends to bring reconciliation. As such, the old saying is very true. God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. This is what Jesus is driving at. Love one's enemies. Now, this was a radical saying, and it goes contrary to what was occurring in Israel. All of God's creatures are his own, and he loves them and desires that they all come to repentance. Jesus' disciples are to look at people in this world, uh, yeah, in this world, as God does, to love them even though even enough to reach out to them with the message of reconciliation. Pray for those who persecute them, as Jesus' disciples were meant to. Jesus states that you are my sons. You are the sons of my Father in heaven. He, will not give, he is not given by means of which to become a child of God, but indicates that love makes a relationship between God and the Father and the disciples. The children of God, the children of Israel were God's sons by his calling and that calling included the obligation to carry out his will. But anyone who responds to God's will in the ministry of Jesus is a son or daughter, son or daughter of the Heavenly Father. Jesus follows up with two examples of common grace given to all people, both evil and good to demonstrate why his disciples are to love both neighbour and enemy. One, God's son, God's son rises on both evil and good people and the rain falls on both. All of God's creatures are worthy of his care in life. Ultimately, each of these individuals will be accountable for his sins and for his choice of evil or good. 
and God someday will judge those who choose. But in this life, he offers the grace of salvation because his desire that the evil and the unrighteous, the tax collector, the pagan, may respond to the calling of the kingdom, so become children of God. The next one is Jesus draws near, Jesus draws on the natural relationship of how God's love is beyond human ties. God takes care in all groups, sorry, all groups take care of their own members. Tax collectors love their friends and colleagues, their wives and children who love them in return. There is no special recognition for Jesus' disciples in loving one another. Even the greet or extend peace and blessing on their own family members. So bringing other disciples into the intimacy of Jesus' community is nothing out of the ordinary. All groups take care of their own and to some degree look at the outsiders as their enemies. But God God does not see the same groupings as we have created. He doesn't have the same boundaries. He loves all persons equally, even though they have rejected him. That is the kind of love Jesus advocates. Jesus' disciples are to have no enemies, but consider all of God's creatures worthy of his love. And finally, you'll be pleased to know, Verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's perfection is an example of God's love for his disciples. This is a love that we are, this is the love we who are his disciples are to display towards our enemies and those that persecute us. God always acts perfectly towards his creatures in love because he is love in 1 John 4 16 and so we know and rely on the love God has for us God is love whoever is whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them in the same way if we are Jesus's disciples we need to have the father's love for all humans we need to give others the love God has given to us. To love one enemies, enemies is the pursuit of, of God. But Jesus' disciples, that's us, are to copy God in all areas of our lives. You shall be perfect. It's a promise of future time. You see, you're not asked to keep being perfect or continually be perfect. It would be impossible for us to keep being perfect in this world. Instead, the future holds a goal that is to shape our entire lives. Jesus puts his command in such a way that his disciples may look for divine help as they press on towards towards God. Jesus' disciples are to to pursue perfection. You shall be perfect before God, it says in Deuteronomy. But what does perfect mean? The word in its original form was wholeness and completeness. It was specific. It specified the soundness of the sacrificial animal. In Exodus, 
The animals you choose must be a year old males without defect and you may take them from the sheep or goats or complete and commit or the complete and commitness of God's blamelessness. In Genesis, the account of Noah and his family, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. We are to pursue God's perfection in our lives. Jesus is saying in the command a promise and a statement of hope. We are engaged in the purpose of regeneration and a new birth, which will end in the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. You need a new birth to enter the kingdom of heaven. John 3. Now a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish rural council, came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for one who could perform signs you are doing if God is not with you. Jesus replied, Verily, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. Jesus answered, Verily, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again. Now that's the saying that we use in church a lot, isn't it? You must be born again. But what does it mean? Well, if you're unsure or confused, why not have a word with myself or or perhaps Robert or Joe or, or any of the other church members as to exactly what it means. You must be born again. You and I... Are to, be, are to be living in his image. As, as a human being, Jesus was perfect image of the invisible God. He is the ultimate example for his disciples. We need to follow his example. Follow him, follow him and give your life to him. I said that my last hymn was a squeaky one and it is. But it's the words I want you to sing. It's the words I want you to look at. In one of the verses it says this. I want to learn to speak of him. My life must show that he lives in me. My deeds, my thoughts, my words must speak of all of his love for me. Now some of you will know this and some of you won't. But please enjoy the words, savour the words and... Here, become and serve. So I will try and find the hymn now.